were given one of these. It's called Wayfair. If you didn't, raise your hand, and the ushers will usher one to you quickly. This is um, this just a little bit to help walk through the Bible, um, come a little clearer to you. This will give you some things to pray about for our ministry. Um, this course that we're working on on Moses now, it will take its place in the biblical character series as, as the next one. There's six of them currently back there on the table. Remember, clean those off. We don't want to have to, we don't want to have to pay the UPS man. We'd rather you go home with them. But um, by this time next year, I, I want to, I've told myself a million times to stop exaggerating, so I'm really trying hard on that one. But conservatively, um, this course on Moses will be completed, and it'll be in at least 20 languages around the world um, by a year from now at this time. So thank you for your encouraging feedback, also your helpful suggestions. Remember, you're only hearing four out of the six parts of this, so, so there's some holes in, in what I'm teaching you. But um, when last we were with Moses, um, he finally, the duel with Pharaoh is complete took not nine plagues, it took tenth plague, the plague of death. Tenth plague of death was finally what broke Pharaoh. And um, God, remember, he, this is a long time ago, this is on Tuesday, this is in a different epoch before train day, right? And um, God, he had to provide a way of dealing with Israelites' sins too. And he did that by the sacrifice of a what? Right. So when God saw the blood on the doorposts of the house, what would he do? Pass over. And we talked about the parallels with that. And, and some of you joined this family um, that we call the family of God on Tuesday, which is just absolutely awesome. That's, that's why Kurt and I come and do these things, among other reasons. That's why Mount Hermon exists. Pharaoh finally changes his mind and goes, get out of here. You, you can go. And so, at last, the people are free. And I, I got to show you this rather than just stand up here. So swivel your necks if, if you're in the back for a minute. This is what happens. Do you see this door over here? This door, what's the sign above the door say? Exit. And that's why most of what we've studied so far has been in the book of Exodus. Because they finally make their exit out of Egypt. And so they leave Egypt and they come here, and it's, it's not long before they get right to here. Linda, will you stand up, please? This is the, who knows, Red Sea. <laughs> Linda emailed me like three weeks ago and goes, I really want to I, I wanna contribute to your teaching, Phil. Where should I sit and what should I wear? And you, you, you absolutely nailed it. And so they get, and the Red Sea is in front of them. And Pharaoh's changed his mind again. Here comes his chariots. Our economy will collapse. We got to bring these people back. I, I, I mean, and, and we want to punish them. In front of them is the Red Sea. There's no way out. What does God do with the Red Sea? He supernaturally divides it. He parts it. The people go through the Red Sea. They emerge on the other side. Pharaoh's chariots, his army try to follow, and what happens? Right? And so now the people are on the other side. 
this center section represents the promised land, the land we know today as Israel. Which direction should they turn, left or right, to go into the promised land? Left. That's north. God goes, take a right, go south. And he sends them right here. Would you stand, please, sir, to this mountain of a man? This represents for us Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai. All the way down to Mount Sinai through this whole experience, though God has just delivered them miraculously. You know what the people do? They whine. They didn't have a whiny rock. That is so cool. Kurt's messages alone make me want to go back and raise our kids all over again. Even just that last whiny rock. And, and so, you know, they're, they're complaining. And, oh, why did you bring us out here to die? And, and Moses and his wife, you can imagine, they're arguing. It's like, why weren't you following the GPS? What is this, this lake in front of us and Pharaoh's behind us? And it's like, I got no service out here, babe. You, you, you have no sense of direction. My father had a sense of direction. What's, you know, nothing's changed really ever, ever, ever. And so they come here and God says, go south. Well, that's wrong. That's God's classroom in the wilderness. Before God can bless his people, he's got to teach his people. Moses goes up on Mount Sinai. He's like, boy, dang, these people, they're constant complaining. My head, the pressure, I, I, it's going to... It's going to explode. And God says, take these two tablets. Remember that? Okay, that's not just a dad joke. That's a bad joke. You can sit down. You can sit down. So we find ourselves in this session right there at Mount Sinai. And this, this next session we call Revelation. Revelation. This is where God is going to teach his people about himself. Revelation. Just a quote that I, I just think is so insightful. I tried to find out who said this. I don't know. There's about 4,000 versions of it online, and I don't know who said it first. Probably somebody that nobody's heard of. Um, this is kind of the way I would word it. It says, as hard as it was to get the Israelites out of Egypt, it was even harder to get Egypt out of the Israelites. Has that been your life experience? It's been mine. I think I was in, it was either third or fourth grade, was riding home from school one day on the bus, and a couple stops before my stop, a buddy of mine named Johnny Wheeler says, hey, why don't you get off at my stop tonight? I go, because it's farther from my house, and I would have to walk down a big hill. We thought we had hills in normal Illinois. I had never seen mountains at that point in my life. We would call them mountains back then. They were not mountains. And I have to go up another. I lived on Smith Drive in normal Illinois. Ellen's like, why, if you'd just gone for John Doe, you would have had the trifecta there of nothingness. And um, I said, why, why? And he goes, oh, there, I go to this club on Tuesdays. And I go, what, what kind of club? He goes, well, it's a Bible club. That's all I needed to hear. Thank you, no thank you. At that point, we went to church most of the time, but it wasn't translating into much difference in my parents' life. I alluded to that the other day. And then he goes, hey, there's, there's like Kool-Aid and there's cookies. Well, that was different. So for all of you who really primarily come to Mount Hermon for the donuts, there's, there's, you're my people. 
I said, we get it. And I go, really? And he, and he goes, oh, yeah, it's good, too. And I go, how many cookies? supposed to take two, but they call it extra. Okay, boom, we're off the bus. This lady by the name of Jenny Walton was teaching a child evangelism fellowship to a news club. She had the gift of flannel graphs. You know what those things are? We need to bring those babies back. One character, they all had multiple personalities. One day one would be Joseph, the next day it would be Jonah. <laughs> They're slapping them on there. And, and um, she's telling the story, and she, in very simple terms, she explained how you can have your sins forgiven by Jesus Christ. And she had this wordless book. Different colors represented different things. And it just, I'd been in church many times, but it clicked that day. And I knew that I was a sinner at that point. I had murdered no one. Um, my drug career was not even launched in third or fourth grade. Um, but you know what? I knew that I had stolen. Because every year for my parents' anniversary, Dad would give Mom a box of Fannie Mae Maple Cream. If they'd had a good year, she got the double-decker box. Not such a good year, the single-decker box. My brother, Steve, was 10 years old. My sister, Suzanne, seven years older. And I, mom would give you anything she had except her Fannie Mae Maple Cream because mom also was a sinner, very selfish. One of nine kids, she would sometimes, this is so gross, she would eat half of one and leave it in there. There would be like cheese marks and red lipstick over the top, right? And she could make those last halfway to their next anniversary. But if she hid them, what was our calling in life was to find them. And I was the best at it. I was the best. I found them under the couch one year. Not only did I find them, and I wasn't going to take a whole year to eat them. You got those little white doily bob paper things they sit in? Man, you don't leave theirs there because mom would take the fences. You got to hide those, and you just throw them in the trash because mom would see them, but you got to put them inside of toilet paper holders. And it was a double-decker year. I, I, can, I still associate this with that five-day club. It was a double-decker year, and I'm not eating off the top shelf. I'm eating off the bottom shelf. And I left one in each corner and then one in the middle, and it would support, and I knew... I knew eventually my sin would be discovered, but not for a long time. Isn't it interesting? I never took a class on how to bury my trash, how to hide my sin. We didn't either. We just figured that out. And worst thing of all, and this was really terrible, had a new beagle that we'd gotten the Christmas before named Heidi. And when my sin was finally discovered, I may have taken some of the white things and scattered them across the living room and Heidi may have got the worst beating she ever got for my sin. I know, some of you are like, you should have shared this Monday. We wouldn't have come back, Bill. <laughs> when Jenny Walsman presented the chance to have my sins forgiven, not just by being perfect the next year, because I knew I couldn't do that, but by what Jesus had done for me, I asked Christ into my character that day. Now, do I understand it a lot better at 63 than I did at, what, 9 or 10 or whatever I was then? I hope so. But this lifelong process, I think my eternal destiny was changed in an instant. I went from death to life. 
the lost are saved. But that's just like leaving Egypt. Now the change has to come from the inside out. What God has put in us now needs to be worked out in our actions and our attitudes. And that's a lifelong process, is it not? So we, we pick up the story in Exodus 19. It says this, Then Moses went up to God. So they're there at Mount Sinai. The people are down around the base. Interesting, God had promised him earlier, this will be a sign to you. When you lead my people out, you will bring them back to this same mountain. I don't know this because scripture doesn't really say it. One of the things I want to ask Moses someday is like, as you're going to Mount Sinai, are you hoping, are you praying, I hope the people have a similar interaction with God that I had? Because he never recovered from his first time on Mount Sinai. So they're there at Mount Sinai. The Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob. And what you are to tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. What a gorgeous picture. I lifted you out of slavery. I liberated you. I set you free. And I didn't just, I didn't just open the doors of Egypt, but I carried you. I took you through the Red Sea. Every need that you have, I'm I'm providing for. He says, now, what's your response to that? It's the same exact outline as Kurt was given us in Ephesians. It's one through three. This is what God has done. Now, live worthy on the basis of that. Not to make yourself acceptable to God, because we already know you can't do that. But in light of all that he's done, it ought to make a difference how we live. Moses pivots right here, same thing or God, actually, now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be very my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. And he does, and they say, yes, we're in. You've got our whole heart. But as hard as it was to get the people out of Egypt, it was harder to get Egypt out of the people. And it's really a very short time before there's their first act of rebellion. They collect their, their precious gold, much of which had been given to them as parting gifts by the Egyptians. Get out of here. Just, just, just don't mess up our lives anymore. And they melted those things down and they made a golden calf with it. The first of the Ten Commandments is what? Who knows? Well, I have no other gods before me. What's the second one? All right, don't make any idols, no graven images. There at Mount Sinai, right after the Ten Commandments, it's exactly what they do. Exactly what they do. Doesn't take people long. And so at Mount Sinai, it's important to understand that, that God is giving the obvious answer is yes, he, he gives them the law. That's the Ten Commandments. Four about their relationship with God and six about how to relate to each other. Because God's a relational God at his very core. He created us for a relationship. And when he reconciles us to himself, he also then calls us to reconcile with each other. How heartbreaking it must still be to God that 11 to 12 on Sunday morning 
in many parts of our country, it's still the most segregated hour of the week. We're not taking the business of reconciliation seriously enough. It's part of our identity as Christ followers. What did God reveal at Mount Sinai? Not just at this one time, but Moses goes back up after the Ten Commandments have been broken. He's, he's going to go back up again. Look at this chart that I made. It's a simple chart. God reveals, and there's those are two columns. If I were good enough at PowerPoint, I would have centered that better. I might have even had grid lines so that you can tell that that's two lines to chart. But, but hey, that's the best I could do. So there you go. It's a chart. He revealed his commandments, the Ten Commandments, sure, but then there's so much more teaching goes on. They hang out at Mount Sinai for quite a while. But he doesn't just reveal his commandments. He also reveals his character. He wants to teach the people, this is what I'm like. This is the God you're following. Why do they need that? Because th their natural tendency, and we see this all over the world, is to bring bits and pieces of other gods and goddesses and bring them in. We call it syncretism. A little of this and a little of that and a little of this. And very common in, in this generation to go, I believe the Bible's got some truth in it. It's a good source of truth. And, and I mean, it has its rightful place right next to the Quran and right next to the writings of Confucius and, and some more contemporary people. That's not how God rolls. So he's teaching his people about himself as well as his commandments. The commandments, his law shows, what, what do you expect? This is how to live in relationship with me. But beyond that, more than just what he expects, it's about who he is, who he is. It's deeply personal. The first half of it focuses on our behavior. This is what we ought to do. The second half is on our beliefs. This is how we ought to think. One of the things I've appreciated most about the, the first hour each day this week is, is the fact that there's no lasting behavioral change without first changing our thinking. It's, it's like as long as we believe in air, it's like we have a bungee cord and you know, we, we've got this harness that we're wearing and our bungee cord is locked over there and we're trying and we're trying and we're trying and we're trying to go this way, but the bungee cord, because we still believe truth or we still believe lies, yanks us back. And we go, all right, I'm going to get a running start this time. So you run really hard and guess what? You, you make it about three feet farther and then inevitably, shoom, we fall back. Lasting life change comes when we unhook from the lie and we attach it over here to the cross, to truth, now what happens? Now there's a supernatural draw toward the truth. Sometimes I want to stray, but what happens now? God's Spirit pulls me back to Himself. But you got to transfer where the bungee cord is attached. Well, God replaced the two tablets because they got shattered after the golden calf. Symbolic of how the people had broken God's commandments. He replaces them with a new set. Look at Exodus 34, verse 4. So Moses chisels out two stone tablets like the first one, one up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hand 
Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. They write out a new set of the Ten Commandments. Imagine that personal interaction with God. I mean, the rest of the people are down below because you get too close to God if you, if you gaze on him with your own eyes. It costs you your life. And Moses welcomed for that, that intimate encounter with God. And God doesn't just replace the law. That's that left-hand column. But, but he says, now, let me, let me tell you about myself. Share this with the people. Don't look at the next slide yet, which you would find difficult to do anyway. Um, but answer this question. If you were asked to describe God, how would you describe him? Give me some, some adjectives that describe God. Amazing, all-powerful, beautiful, what? Gracious, loving, holy, just, omnipotent. All right, how about in the cheap seats back there? You got any outside? Merciful. Yep, I mean, we, we could spend from now till lunch making a list. If you've hung out at church for any time at all, you've gotten a, some good input in this. In our first church, um, I think I may have mentioned this the first day, we pastored a church in Cisna Park, Illinois. I thought it was going to be a suburb of Chicago, and my sister and her husband lived in Villa Park, Illinois. They got Oak Park, Villa Park, Cisna Park's probably a suburb. It was not. It's about 100 miles south of Chicago on the Illinois-Indiana line almost, 850 people. We made it 852 when we moved there. They didn't change the sign. It said, it said uh, Cisna Park, a great past with a greater future. And my brother, who's kind of a little twisted in his mind, goes, I'm going to sneak up there and change it so it says a great past with a greater pastor. And I'm like, you are not going to do that. You are not. He's, he's 10 years older chronologically, but not necessarily in other ways. Thankfully, he didn't. We're there. We're, there's no stop sign or no stop lights there. If you dial the wrong number, you talked 15 minutes anyway because it's somebody you knew. Nobody used turn lights. It's like, oh, aren't you late to pick up Jessica at, so at soccer practice? Well, go ahead. You know, I mean, it was, we'd, we'd hear sirens, and I'd just go chase the fire trucks and the ambulance because there's about a one out of five chance it was somebody we knew. This is an amazing place to live, amazing place. And, and there we are, and nobody moved there. There was no transfer growth. Our, our church grew significantly during the years we were there on, by local standards, you know. Okay, we were not on the cover of Christianity Today or anything. It was the fastest growing church. But we saw a number of people come to know Christ as Savior, a good number of people. One of them was a guy named Donnie. Donnie was a big man. Donnie was, I mean, he like was probably this high and like his, his forearms, he was a farmer, but he was also a welder. And, and he, he was definitely overweight, but he was also ripped. A and he was kind of a scary man. He was um, not given to a lot of violence, but he had a bit of a temper and um, 
I was warned the first time we went to visit him that he, if he offers you a cold drink, that visit's over because his pistol is in his freezer. I'm like, good to know. Thank you for this pastoral orientation. And anyway, Donnie and I just kind of became friends. And over time, Donnie put his faith in Jesus Christ as his Savior. So one Wednesday night, and in our church, Wednesday night was like me and Ellen, again, poor grandma, Ellen and I, and a few close friends. And so there's maybe 20 of us around this table. And right as we're ready to start, Donnie rolls in. And everybody just kind of jerked. They hadn't all heard the news about his new faith in Christ. And they're like, <gasps> like one of the 10 least likely. In, in fact, this is a different story for a different message. But, but the shock that there was that Donnie could come to know Christ, I found that offensive. And so we actually came up with a list of the 10 least likely people to ever trust Jesus as Savior. You can't do that in a city. A little town, everybody knows everybody, or they think they do. We made a list of the 10 least likely. To date, six of them are heaven-bound when they die. And Donnie was number one. And Donnie, when he would get nervous, he'd say, whatever. Uh, my name's Donnie, or whatever. Good to meet you, Phil, or whatever. I just feels fine. You don't need to. If he got really nervous, he'd go, whatever, whatever. And he had a really deep voice. And so Donnie sits down, and we're studying the attributes of God. And I thought, well, this will be pretty cool. And that week, we're talking about God's omniscience. Who knows what that means? Right, he knows everything. At the end of that session, it's prayer time. And I mean, these are the seasoned saints. These are like people, they pray perfect King James-only prayers, right? They put the W in God in the blessing. And it, we never went straight around the circle. It was random. But for some reason this night, they just kind of start around the circle. And I'm like, oh, no. I should have said you don't have to pray. This is like Donnie's first time here, and he's going to feel awkward, and it's going to be embarrassing. But we've already started praying. And I'm like, well, just, just, just. And God's like, just shut up and trust me. And I'm like, okay, okay, okay. And, and it gets to Donnie, and I'm waiting for the person next to Donnie to just jump in and remove the awkwardness. Donnie didn't need any help. Leaned over like this. Dear God or whatever, this is, this is Donnie. <laughs> I guess you know that already because we just learned your omniscience, so I suppose that means you know who I am, and you don't even need my last name because you know which Donnie I am. I don't have the right words to say like my new brothers and sisters because I guess I'm part of this family now or whatever. Because God, I, 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 don't, I don't even know what some of the words I'm hearing mean, some of the same words you just threw out. He goes, but God, I want to tell you, you really are great. And he goes, I guess, God, I want to say you're like loaded dice because you just can't be beat. couple of the elderberries, I look over at them, and they're looking up out of one eye, and we kind of look at each other, and there's tears running down people's faces. We got to watch that guy grow like a weed in two years. We would hear early in the morning, like six o'clock, 
these here is big welding buckets. Right outside our windows. Oh gosh. We called it our 3D, our daily Donnie dose. And Donnie at one point started listening to Christian radio preachers. Uh, he, he comes to me once, he goes, have you ever heard of this guy, Wendell or whatever? That's kind of funny name for a preacher, ain't it? <laughs> I, I, go, I go, Chuck? He goes, yeah, Chuck Wendell or whatever. I go, I, it, he, he calls it Swindoll. He goes, that's not what it looks like to me or whatever. <laughs> he started ordering cassette tape and cassette tape and cassette tape. If you don't know what those are, go to the Mount Harmony Museum. They'll have some samples there. <laughs> And he'd bring it and go, you got to listen to this one. I could not consume stuff at the rate that he was digesting spiritual content. So I think of all the prayers God heard that night. God brought me manuals to diamonds that I call the checklist. Donnie's right on that. Hope you're listening. How would God describe himself? We don't have to guess because it's in the next verses, verse 6. And he, that's God, passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. If God had a business card, he said, this happens on airplanes. Airplanes at Mount Hermon are the only places where you hang out for the whole flight, and at the end they go, now tell me your name. We're just, we're just here. Airplanes are the same way. You can have a great conversation and business cards are exchanged at the end of the flight. They've had this miraculous encounter with God, and God says, here's my card. What would God put on his business card? Because how would he know that? What would God include even in a resume where it was short enough that a company or a person would actually read it? Overwhelming amount of strengths and attributes that he has, but these are the ones God selects. Here they are listed so you can see them a little easier. Compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Now, don't misunderstand. He does not leave the guilty unpunished. Why? Because his holiness and his love have to be balanced. Our sin demands payment, just like that old song, we owed a debt we couldn't pay. Thankfully, he paid a debt he didn't even know. God doesn't just provide the sacrifice, God honors the sacrifice. But look at that list right there. I, I think this must have really sunk in when Moses then shared this with the people. I know this, this, this description. They memorized it. Later on, there's one point where God is contemplating just destroying the people, and Moses actually quotes almost word for word this back to God. He says, you can't do that, God. I want to remind you, you're guilty. 
Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And then it goes through things, and then it says, through Moses, he said this. And it's almost word for word what it said here. This has stood the test of time as a wonderful description of God. In fact, Jonah, this is interesting, one of our next biblical character series will be Jonah. And if you're still operating on a VeggieTales level understanding of Jonah, you're missing the message of the whole book. That book is about prejudice. It's not just about, I didn't want to go to Nineveh. I was afraid they'd kill me if I went there. That's not the action at all. The, the true story is he doesn't want to go there because he hates those people. They've oppressed his people. And eventually he goes there and he preached, and oh no, you know what they do? They repent. And God, God forgives them. And you find Jonah sitting out under that scraggly little tree, you know, and, he, and he's sitting there and he's like, this is why I didn't want to go there, God. This is why I didn't want to go there. Because I knew that you are a God who is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger, and he quotes most of the rest of this. Isn't it interesting how we have a double standard sometimes? When we moved to Atlanta, I could not adjust to the level of crime that was there. We eventually had to just stop watching the local news because when we got there, it was running about a murder a day on average. One of those really violent seasons like we're in right now as a country. And I just, I was sitting in my recliner. My recliner is as close as I get to heaven's throne on this side of eternity. And I'm sitting there on my throne, and I just, they, they had found some abandoned children. That, it, 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 was, it was terrible. And I, I just blurted out, I go, I just wish God would give people what they deserve. And Ellen, who preaches shorter but often more effective sermons than mine, simply says, is that what you want him to do with us? No, I don't want him to do with us. I want him to be merciful and gracious with us, and I want to see his justice with other people, especially people different than me. We can't have it both ways. Can't have it both ways. And Jonah is all ticked off because God turns out to be just what he said he was clear back in the book of Exodus. Tom Stice is here. Wave your hand, Tom and Deb. Mount Hermonite people for, I don't know, 8,000 years or something ago. They started coming. They planted a few trees out here, he told me. Um, Tom also serves on the board of Walk Through the Bible. That's why I'm trying to be on good behavior this week and not accidentally start any, I don't want to found a cult or anything. It's never my goal, but sure, when a board member's there, I definitely don't want to do it. And I, I learned, Tom, I learned something about you I didn't know before, that you grew up in Peoria, Illinois. Is that true? Which is near normal for us. I, I don't know how I never knew that about Tom until this week. One of my first ever walk through the Bible Old Testament live seminars that I ever taught was in Peoria, Illinois at Grace Presbyterian Church. That was, a, that was when we were pastoring a cool country town. This church was, by central Illinois standards, was huge, like a couple thousand people. I'd never talked to that many people in my life. 
And I'm like, why did it walk through the Bible study? Are you there? We got more experience with structures. And now they thought you'd connect well. Just, 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 just go. And I love that song we sang, When I Don't Think I'm Good Enough, You're Enough, God. Those were encouraging moments for me in life. And Ellen, ever so helpful, she goes, if you get nervous, just turn around and talk to the choir. I go, the choir is bigger than our church. And the senior pastor, who was pretty well-known, he was one of the early radio guys in this service, was watching, he sat right here in the front, and he heckled me the whole time. He was great. It was, it was all good nature. I laid out the room. This is north, this is south, this is east, this is west. He goes, five minutes in, you've already told four, law, four lies. I'm like, oh, they brought the real directions. Well, they are for today. And I mean, I, mean, I, I laid out the room, Sea of Galilee, Jordan River, Dead Sea, and a guy over here raised his hand and goes, may I move over there, please, Mr. Tuttle? He didn't teach us that in training. I'm like, why? And he gave me his card. He goes, I'm Bob Wilson of Wilson Mortuary, and I just feel more comfortable in the Dead Sea. <laughs> that is a true story. That is, 19, that is 1989, and he still supports our ministry monthly. Glad I let him move. Good move. Great marketing for him. This whole event goes great. But I prayed to God and I said, God, don't let anything happen today that I haven't planned. You know when that happens, Gabriel flies by and goes, can I watch, can I watch, can I help God, can I help God? I get a senior pastor in his 70s who's heckling me. I get a guy who wants to move into the Dead Sea because he's an undertaker. I mean, I'm like, ah! So glad God doesn't answer his prayers the end of the day these two guys come up they're both 20 somethings and one of them goes tell phil what you just told me and in those days now now that event lasts about three hours it used to last like from nine to five nobody ever asked if there was a new testament they had no interest in coming again it was just overkill this guy goes tell phil what you just told me and he goes well first of all you ought to know this is the first time i've ever been in church like ever he goes like ever and i said well first of all you ought to know it doesn't usually last this long so so give it another try but um i said so what'd you think and and his friend goes tell him what you told me and he says well my friend's been talking to me uh, about jesus for like ever and trying to get me to come to church with him and finally said this was the day that'll put the pieces of the puzzle all together for you gotta come to this and he says, but I learned a lot about the pieces of the puzzle. He says, but, but at the end of the day, I turned to my friend and I said, no wonder you want a relationship with a God like that. I still train our new instructors, the men and women who teach for us. That's the center of the bullseye. It's not about mastering the content. It's not so you can flawlessly tell the storyline in order. It's no wonder you want a relationship with a God like this description of God is, is a big part of that. It's our calling. Not just those of us who stand up here and teach, but, but all of us in our relationships. I was at a gathering of a bunch of ministry CEOs, probably, probably about, that was before the pandemic, so two, maybe two and a half years ago. And there was a guest there, and he spent his life ministering in the Middle East 
have had more just unbelievable experiences than most of the people actually put together. And he was leading the devotional, and he says, hey, he says, uh, just to get us started, who do you think is the greatest evangelist of our generation? Guess who the first answer was? Billy Graham. He says, well, he's kind of, he's slowing down, so maybe he's the previous generation. He says, this generation. There wasn't a clear-cut winner. There were some conversations about it. He kept saying, nope, that's not it. That's not it. That's not it. That's not it. Finally, we go, we give up. And he goes, I think it's Osama bin Laden. And, and we said, oh, okay. That's right, because you can be an evangelist for anything. An evangelist is, you know, uh, uh, just a... a, a raving fan of something and so yeah so it's not just christians have evangelists he goes no that's not what i'm talking about when i asked you the question i said who has done more to bring people to faith in jesus christ than anyone else in our generation and he goes my answer is osama bin laden nope i mean this is the president of crew this is Wycliffe. this is lots of big ministries ywam says, I'll tell you something. says, I think bin Laden has done more to draw people to Jesus Christ than anybody else in our generation. He says, we're seeing thousands of Muslims put their faith in Jesus Christ. And he says, and I think it can all be traced back to bin Laden. We're like, help, Santa, I'd like to buy a vow. Please make the puzzle clear for us here. And, and he says, because many Muslims people who have read the Quran, people who have, they're raised culturally Muslim. They, they see the radical expression of Islam and they see that, they read and that gets justified by taking verses and those verses are twisted and they're like, I don't know what God's like, but God's not like that. And then they hear about a God who is this. And you know what they say? I want a relationship with the God like that. It's a stunning conversation. What's that have to do with us? A lot. How are we presenting God right now? Is God on the endangered species list because your candidate didn't win the last presidential election? Are we freaking out? Have we equated a political party with faith in God himself? That's really dangerous. Really dangerous. Like referees in a football game, they don't huddle with either team. They don't wear the jersey. They don't wear red jersey or blue jersey. Why? Because they answer to a higher authority. And when one team does something good, they can go, that's really good. That's really good. Yes, I want to see abortion not be so accessible in our country. I do, I do, I do. And yet over here, I, I, I like your heart for the poor. But sometimes this trickle-down economics on the dying basis is also very good too much. Satan does it sometimes. Referees in a football game can reward either team. They can also take out that little yellow handkerchief and go, and they can call penalties on both teams. And the church should supersede every political party, every human government, every nation on earth,
because God's kingdom is bigger than all that stuff. that how we interact with our kids? Because values really are taught more than they're taught. Why? Because they have one. Again, this is one of those places where God took the two sets of messages this week and just wove them together. So, beautiful. What's the bottom line of this session? It is this. Freedom is more about changing our character than our circumstances. God, if you will just get us out of Egypt... We will be so thankful, so thankful that we melt down our gold and make a golden calf. Hard as it was, took ten plagues to get them out of Egypt. It's going to take decades to even begin to get Egypt out of hand. This is ground zero for us right here. That description that we just said, it is, it is worth memorizing. Absolutely, it's worth memorizing. God isn't Santa Claus. It says he does bring discipline. He does judge, but look how patient he is. He is big on second chances and new beginnings. Amen? And that ought to affect the way we parent. That ought to affect the way that we treat people who are different than us, who may not agree and cross all the T's and dot all the I's or even use the same alphabet that we do. Freedom is more about changing our character than our circumstances. Father, thank you. Thank you that for more than a hundred years this place has stood in the shadow of the redwoods. It's good for us to feel small here. It's good for us to correctly use words like awesome when they come to mind. Yes, Lord, you are good. You are great. You are who you are. And Lord, we praise you that you are still the Lord who is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love for thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. No, you don't leave the guilty unpunished but you loved us even enough not just to provide righteousness and atonement. May we present you in such a way that our friends and our co-workers and our neighborhood and Lord, most of all, that our children and our grandchildren say, wow, Bobby, wow, Manabel, no wonder you walk in such freedom with a God like you. Lord, all of why he could say it this morning and so many others. So may we, even this week, become a little more like Jesus Christ, more like Jeff, following the rules more carefully, but falling more in love with you and intentionally patterning our lives after the awesome name of Jesus Christ. We pray and everybody said,
Thank you, Phil. And <clears throat> what some beautiful pictures you shared with us this morning of who God is and the attributes of God and how um, we connect with those things. I love that picture of the bungee and how as we connect with God, it pulls us back into him and how those are the things that make us and Christ in us attractive to those around us. It's what made Christ attractive to Donnie, I bet, and how he came to know the Lord. May we be that for those that are around us. Thank you, Phil, for that beautiful picture of who God is. And so uh, may we go um, in that spirit of just reflecting on God and the beauty even of this space as he so well talked about um, here at Mount Hermon throughout the rest of our day and um, through the rest of our weeks. You guys are dismissed. You guys can go pick up your children and